So, Shear 3. Uh, practical Hilchot Kibbet Avayim for visitors, for parents and adult children. Uh, the topic of this year specifically is self-care and abuse and the boundaries. Uh, the first year, we set out uh, three different models, fundamentally three different models of Kibbet Avayim. Uh, the Ramam, which is built on social hierarchy, the uh, the um, Sefer HaChinach, which is built on gratitude, and the Sefer Haridim, which is built on love. Um, in the second year, we... Um, Remy, we talked about the second share. I'm blanking suddenly. Values conflicts. Second share, we talked about values conflicts, and we uh, right and argued that fundamentally, the uh, fundamentally parents should not be imposing values on children, even though they have an educational obligation to inculcate values uh, in children. But if it comes to a power play, then it's very rare that parental values are enforceable uh, on children. Um, so now we're going like to the more extreme version of that, which, um, which, where, where, the, um, the, where, where parents impose in the name of Kibbutz Aim, and that itself can be, uh, can be framed, as a, you know, as a value imposition, right? You need to respect your elders, right? I'm going to teach you to respect your elders. Um, can also cross the line into abuse, and how you negotiate those boundaries, recognizing that um, we're talking to each of us as both parents and children. You know, it has to be self-aware, right? You know, the things that you would perceive as abuse, well, you shouldn't be doing them to somebody else, <laughs> right? That's uh, that's pretty straightforward. Um, so you have a whole set, right? A whole set of. I start every year with the list of mitzvot, um, and those mitzvot, um, like all mitzvot, which impose obligations on others, are uh, forms of power, which, um, right, which which has to be, you know, to some extent, right? You don't have to be modern to recognize that all. Right, all situ- right, any situation where someone has an obligation has an obligation towards you, um, right? Gives the, right gives you power. It gives you the other person power also, which the Gemara recognizes because it means that um, that the other that you know that the other person is guilty if they don't fulfill their obligations towards you. And so you can right so you, right so each ju- the, just the creation of obligations toward right from one party towards another um, creates power that work in both directions. Um, you know this is. Um, I guess you know, most easily seen in the concept of uh, modesty regulations, um, which you know, which are reflections of power both ways. Usually, we perceive it, you know, pretty radically on the uh, as, as restrictions imposed by men on women, which is certainly the way the power dynamic often works. But it also can work the other way. Um, I am, you know, I remember the um, the daughters of the mashkiach in uh, in uh, BMT. Used to come into the cafeteria and create, you know, and with all the guys waiting online and say, "You can't touch me." Just go come, cut out of the line and grab all the food, <laughs> right? And go, which was, right, which was an interesting way of uh, right of leveraging, of leveraging the uh, the power. And it tells you, right? There are, you know, there certainly are um, are things you can do, right? The measures of on Ben Pellet's wife. Those are all ways in which, uh, right, in which um, that sort of power can be leveraged, and that's true about Kibbutz Avim also. Where um, certainly, you know, apparently, if you think obedience is part of it, but even if you don't think obedience is formally part of it, the way the Sefer Charedim does, um, it's very hard to think of any way of conceiving of mitzvot and kavod and yira that don't create a strong bias towards fulfilling somebody's wishes, right? And therefore, right, you can express power by you can express power by um, just by expressing a wish, um, and on the other hand. Um, it means, right, you know, you can turn around and say that if you ever ask me to do anything, right, then you're violating Lifneva, right? Lifneva is a great way of of, uh, of leveraging power, of leveraging power the other way. 
Um, so we have to account for that. So I gave you also this time, I've mentioned in previous shurim, an article in The Atlantic, um, which I think uh, which I think echoes the theme I had at the first page of the first set of Mikorot. Uh, Joshua Coleman right, says right that there's massive, and I assume this is, it's, this seems to be based on the Shilohs I get, seems to be to be an accurate description of, of Orthodox Jewish community as well, that parents and children are much more frequently utterly estranged than they were, than they were in, in previous years. And the language she says, which is, is exactly the point I'm trying to make, is that both sides often fail to recognize how profoundly the rules of family life have changed over the past half century. And by the rules, we mean the social norms. And unless, since halakha does not control the world entirely, it, it has to negotiate with, the, so with those social norms and the extent to which halakha, uh, right, how halakha changes because it has to negotiate with those social norms and the extent to which halakha, um, because its interests are, are short-term ends, right, the existing relationship accommodates those social norms because fighting them will, is a losing battle and the extent to which halakha instead says, like, well, our job is to preserve an ideal and, and if that right, and even if that ideal can't be implemented in our society, we're gonna right, we're gonna right, right, we're gonna stand by that ideal because otherwise we think there'll be nothing, right? There'll be nothing else out there in in fifty years, right? Because we'll, halacha as an independent source of value will be gone. I think is the kind of question that we need to think about. Now we might decide that actually, um, you know, we could we could decide actually halacha for the past two thousand years, let's say, has been accommodating. And we finally live in the society which 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 uh, embodies halachic values, and we don't. And so we finally get not to compromise. But if you don't, right? But if you don't think that, right? If, if you think that there is a uh, a genuine clash between the ideal world that halacha envisions and the the world we live in, so then you have to ask that question: To what extent are we poskening? What that the, we're finally living our our, our reaction? And what, who, would, uh, who would think that? You know, right? So it has to be insured every day. Right? <laughs> you know, all, you know I, I think I don't think that. So, like, so I'm making, you know, so it'd be an argument, for, it'd be an argument, an argument for the. At least I don't generally think that. I think it'd be an argument for the. Uh, you know, it'd be a devil's advocate argument. I think, and I'll try to show in the context of this year that um, that I think we tend to overestimate the extent to which halacha assumes hierarchy. We tend to envision halacha, right? The Rambam. As the right, the way the Ram understands it, as the fundamental setting of halacha, and I think there's like a pretty massive array of chuvot that um, that limit parental power. We'll talk about them tonight. The question is whether those chuvot are all on the assumption that well, there's a default and a very very powerful social default, and then when people ask shilas, right, we'll be matir, but we want the social default to be the other way. Or whether those chuvot actually are saying, you know what? There's, it's unfortunate that we only get to make these points when people ask Shilohs, because really we think that there should be much more space for uh, right for for child autonomy. Yes. It, it, can I try to make an argument for why halakha is, is finally being fulfilled on Shabbat's name in a way that never happened before? Sure. It, it seems to me that classical halakha treats fathers and mothers. Not a thing anymore. 
I hear the argument. Yeah, I, I think I, that's I, a pretty strong statement that seems to be uh, out of context, or out of context of what people in societies, traditional societies, would say about how they viewed the treatment of their mothers. Yeah. Okay. So I. I, I I tend to agree with Mark on this one, but um, but I, that's how you would make the argument, <laughs> right? Then we could, uh, right? Then we can, you know, we can have arguments about the inevitability of patriarchy and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I love quoting that. I have to say, it's a transgressive throw. No one, no one here has ever heard of Stephen Goldberg's the inevitability of patriarchy, have you? Ha! Well, I got to quote it. Okay. <laughs> the. Um, Except in certain, certain societies in Polynesia. No, 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 no. Not, not, not for Stephen Goldberg. <laughs> Any case. Uh, that's the whole point of it is to is to de, is to deny all the anthropological evidence of matriarchal societies. No, no one uh, okay, so on page two, um, we um, right. So again, again, these are my code we've done in previous weeks. Uh, the first thing, right, that the first limit on uh, parental power is that they can't tell you to do anything that God told you not to do, and we saw um, we saw in the um, in last week that there. are that the standard for parents doing things that the Torah tells you not to do can be very low, or right that thing that, that it, you know can be anything the Torah you know, frowns upon, and we saw that you can construct this in a way where it, it's not just that you don't have to obey them in that matter, but that any sort of ethical violation deprives you right deprives them of any right to covet at all, which um, most of you I think correctly thought was going too far, but nonetheless I think an argument you know, I think a reasonable argument could be made that way uh, in the rush. Um, and the um, right else we also gave you last time this is the end of the the end of this is on page two and I didn't take another page that, okay. um, so on, right on page two is the machlokas in the Ramah tour about whether a mamzer is fighting kibudav aim even if his parents haven't done shuva um, so right, you have another tactic which is just to claim that abusive people are by definition rishayim and therefore there's no chayev, there's no chiyav of kibudav aim towards them um, but that often is circular because that, you know, because you, know, you get, you get stuck in, in, um, like often part of the nature of abuse is that it's very hard to perceive what the person, the other person is doing is wicked. We're talking about this, this, the middle. The, well, the Ramam says you're obligated and the tourist says you're not. Right, so right, so, right, um, so if you take the tourist position, you take the Ramam's position, you're... No, he thinks even if, even if, Right, he, you know, he thinks like, but most it's extremely. Like, some, you know, the father went away. You know, fake witnesses came. The courts had fun. Mother said, oh, "Make it worse." The Rama thinks that, right, the Rama, the Rama thinks that your father, right, that you were fathered by, that you were born out of incest, and you're right, because your father. No, but I'm saying that, you know, he's he, that in context, all he's saying, blanks him in all cases of mom's I'm saying if it's a. It's a case where it's, in some ways, through no fault of the parents themselves. In Hachinami. Then the Ram would say, you don't have to do tshuva. But he thinks that even if the parents did it the wrong, right, did the worst possible thing in that regard and didn't do tshuva, you're still obligated because the Ram thinks that Kibbut Aveim is independent of your parents' character. Whereas the Torah thinks not, generally we paskin like the Ram. Okay, but I want to try and get, I want to try and deal with more, uh, more with rules that, um, that relate to more specific kinds of um, situations. Um, no, but I hope I will offer hints in the context of the. Uh, it's, it's like a word that has so many gradations, so it's very, so it's very dangerous. It's very dangerous. I could give you legal definitions. Is that what we want? I mean, I, I don't think so. So I think actually, right, probably for halachic purposes, I would like to say that the very first, the truva, the first truva of the Torah Lishma, 
Number 270 is a really, I think, is a really useful definition. So you can tell me if you agree. Um, but he says, Reuven was sitting laughing and decreed on his grown son to do childish things. All right? right? To ride a stick in the courtyard, right? To hobby horse, I think, is the way. Right? Is the way, right? He tells, right? He has, he's, you know, because he wants to amuse his friends, I guess. Right? So he tells his so he tells his grown son to behave like a small child to amuse his friends, and the son is ashamed to do such a foolish act because right because you're not really uh, right you're not, right you're not that kind of kid anymore. So do you have an obligation out of kibud aim in order to in order to do it, or perhaps all such right? patur, and the answer is all situations like that are patur. So the question is what's the standard for what's the standard uh, drawn by this case right? If that, let's assume that I haven't cut out anything essential. Um, right, even though I'm excerpting, so this is the, right. So this is the case. We say everything like that case. So what's the standard being established by this case for um, for parental commands that are right that you are per se exempt from 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 uh, from following, no matter how much comfort they will bring your parents or happiness. Violation of your dignity. Right, so I want to say that as I think that's like a good first stage definition of abuse is uh, right, abusive use of kibbutzava aim is when one person gains dignity by diminishing somebody else's. Does it have to be objectively undignified? Because if you personally find it distressing, I think. I don't think that's a. So I don't think that's a loss of dignity. I don't think that would be kol kihai, Right, that's just something you don't want to do. But this is an attempt to. It's not hard to find a piece of clothing that an individual person would feel humiliated to wear, but other people would say, "Oh, he looks normal in that." So again, I, I think that would probably depend on whether the parent is aware that they're doing this, and whether a reasonable person would right would understand why you felt humiliated in that way. I think this is an easier case because here it's objective, right? The 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 entire purpose of the thing is to. Right is right is that one person gains dignity by making somebody else do something, right? Right, and that by making else somebody else do something dignifies their kavod. So that that seems to me like a really good first level definition, right? You know, that if if people if people use kibud aim to prop themselves up by by asserting your right by by asserting that they have the right to deprive you of dignity, then they're probably an abusive person. That's pretty dangerous. It seems to me like there's a, there's a spectrum. Yeah, there's always a spectrum. But it's a warning. It's like it's a key warning sign, both for parents and teachers. The teachers also, right? Whenever people, people, if people establish their kavod, or Jews and non-Jews. Right? I, mean, I always think like the, the line, when people talk about chosenness, so the line is, do they talk about chosenness by, you know, by, um, by invidious comparison? Well, then there's probably something deeply wrong about it. Um, Right, but I, I, I think, and I, you know, I watch this with teachers. I think, but I think that's a reasonably good line. There are obviously extreme cases when people not only ask you to humiliate things, but do humiliating things to you. That's much worse. So is it inherently wrong to say because I'm the mommy and you're the kid? Yeah. I'm serious because you said you you are the one who brought in the invidious comparison. Yeah. So, so I'm talking about adults. Right. Among adults, yeah. I don't know that. Right. It was among adults that you ever say. Right. Do you ever say that? That's you know, that's a little risky. Okay. Yes. I just thought of an example for this. So what if like for the parents' dignity, um, it would be really good to wear 
Right. So they, therefore, they say to the kid, oh, now you have to work for me so that I can have expensive clothing. Like, it's not humiliating per se, but it's like using the other person for the honor of the... Right, so that I think I think that I think that that's you know that that's a different gradation, right? You know where that's uh, that that ties into the you know whether parents or children bear the costs, if you impose costs, right? That that might be a different axis when people impose costs, right? The, the Gemara says they can't impose costs on you, and to what extent time is a cost? Uh, so in our, mo- in our modern economy, yeah. a word that would crop up, and yeah. that would impact the adult, the adult child's autonomy. Yeah, no, I think that's, um, I think that, you know, that to the extent, you know, that, I were, that, I were, that if I were trying to think about this in a broader context, I would probably say the question, when you start, when you start imposing things that diminish people imposing things, right? Not because of the nature of the, right? the nature of circumstances sometimes impose things on you. You need care, right? That's not something you're imposing on somebody. That's something that, that might be something that the world imposes on you. But when somebody in a situation of, um, that's purely voluntary, uh, right? Seeks to, right? Demands things that affect people's capacity to, right? To be who they want to be, right? That they're, they're right, narrow their choices to that extent, um, right? So let's say you know the only the only thing you could possibly be is a doctor, <laughs> uh, right? Why don't you apply to medical school? <laughs> uh, right. I think those are. I think yeah. I think that those that that would be you know. That would, you know, that would run the risk. I think we have to be, we have to be you know, look at that with an eye and Sarah. Right. Scenario, Yeah, that's right. So we're going to talk about that case. That's the, very much the next. That's exactly the next case coming up, okay. right? Exactly. Not from, not from the movie. No, exactly the next truva. Okay, so it's good pushback, um, and you know, good ways of extending it, um, and you know, and the existence of adolescence complicates everything. Which I'd rather really talk about adults, uh, you know, un- unmitigated adults, right? We ha- we we have this odd situation where we have people who are bar and bat mitzvah, but we don't treat as psychological adults, um, right? And how we handle that is a you know that's a that's a separate challenge logically, um, but. Dealing with you know, dealing with adults, yeah, I don't know that you know that would ever be right for a fifty-year-old to tell a thirty-year-old because I'm the mommy, you're the daughter. All right, right, I don't know. Yeah, I could see the argument. Um, I don't think my parents would ever have said that to me. Um, I don't think so. Um, but I obviously was raised by dangerous. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Dangerous libertarians. Well, they, they, they did not. My parents. They were raised by you know, grand libertarians. Well, my parents were not self-conscious libertarians. Um, my father still is not, as you know. Um, the uh, yeah. Uh, I thought the reasoning tends to be, wow, you give your children so much autonomy. Wow, I probably did that too. <laughs> <laughs> Tends to be the way I have other reasons about the issue right now. Um, okay. She did. Um, okay. Just the defaults are different, right? Which is part of why, right? The societal defaults are different, which makes it different. Um, okay. Second question of the Benish Chai. So remember, we talked about last time that there's a whole series of chivot that tell you that um, 
tell you that parents cannot tell their sons whom not to marry. We'll, we'll go back to the Marik on that soon. Most of those Trivot, um, most of those Trivot uh, say there's no difference between sons and daughters, and they use some variant of the, some variant of the claim that women are chayvot in, in Puravu Drabanan, or the weird Ran that uh, women are, are, are quasi chayavot. But right now, one really knows who to do with that run. Um, but the Benish Chai takes it straightforward that women have no obligation to marry at all. And therefore, in principle, parents should be able to tell daughters not to marry because they need to take care of them. And then he has a fascinating way out. I think the, uh, I may be overreading the Triva, so you'll tell me if you agree with it, right? He says, A daughter's father commanded her not to marry. Is she obligated to heed her father in this matter? Answer We hold that the woman is not obligated in Peru, and this is clear law, and there's not even a rabbinic obligation. Don't even mention the Ran's notion that there's a, an obligation to be an assistant. Um, therefore, right, and he said, therefore, women are allowed to self-sterilize, right, cut stuff, I kept out, right, kept out things like that. Uh, presumably, it'd be very makeable in contraception. Um, therefore, she's obligated to uphold her father's command in this matter. However, right, so now, right now, it looks, it looks like we're straightforward. Yeah, parents have this kind of control over daughters. And then he says something, and to me, like, I think that this whole truth is just a, is just a setup, and he's feeding her her line, because the question really says, uh, my daughter wants to marry because she wants to have children. And so what he does is he feeds her, no, that's not what you're supposed to say. Uh, right? And what he says to her is, however, if she has another reason and interest in being married, that touches on a matter of prohibition, namely, that she is afraid of the stumbling block of pro- promiscuity should she remain single. Well, then she's off the hook, right? Then she's off the, off the hook. Which is, a, right, so the claim is that you, parent, that you can say, right, I'm going to formulate this, right, you can say, that it will damage my spiritual growth if I do this for you. And all of a sudden, right, so it seems like your, your, own, right, your own sense of your spiritual development uh, it, right, overrides Kibbutz aim, and that gives you enormous, uh, enormous autonomy and space for self-care, if you formulate it that broadly. That you can, you know, you can modify this by saying, no, it has to be an Isur as severe as what? I don't know what's right. She's not married, so she's not going to commit adultery. I was going to ask whether it has to be that she's asking to behave normatively. And maybe if she were asking to behave non-normatively, we wouldn't care about her spiritual development. Well, how could you behave non-normatively? I really think that if I do nothing on So now that you know, then we get to a second stage question, which is who, dis- right? Which is you know whether these issues are li- are litigatable, right? You know, if she says she says that, can she go back to him and will he, and right and will right? And that's that's a question which relates to what we talked about before the year started about which which sorts of claims should be right should be subject to lawsuit and which sorts of claims should be left up to the right, left up to the parties. Um, I think that's a different kind of question. Um, So that again, that you know, that shouldn't happen with adult children, right? If you have adult children who are somecha, right? So halakha has a category of somecha shulchan, right? Where somebody is still economically dependent, and people are economically dependent, so you have obligations of gratitude uh, or realistic accommodations to power, which are not unique to parents and children, right? Anybody who, right? Any, anybody who controls you economically is going to have the capacity to limit your choices, and they shouldn't abuse their power. But that's not a question of parental power. 
Anybody, right? Any, right? Right? It, it can happen. Right, but it's not litigatable. Where the per, you know, because to say what's the limit of that, in this case, what's the limit of that power? It's all, it often depends on how, what gives you that economic power, right? There, there might be cases where if you have a, you know, as a trust fund and you're a, an executor, right? So there are many Perry Masons about exactly that question, right? To what extent? Father, the court saying, if I don't agree to this, he's going to, you know, basically throw me out before I can, and then I, I won't be able to marry anybody. So yeah, I would think. I would think that in that society, where the Benish High answers this kind of shayla, that she could take him to court, because he's feeling and demanded dowry. Because that right? Because that's because the father has an obligation to marry off his daughter, and unless she has done something to violate her obligations to keep it out of him, he has no right to default on that on, on that obligation. He has an obligation to. Yeah, he has obligations to both ways. Well, but it sounds like quite a bit. That would not sound that. Yeah, uh, so that, that's not a legal outcome. So that's an interesting question, right? So why doesn't he think, right? If she claimed the right, she claimed the right to a dowry. Why, why couldn't he counter claim it? It's a really, I mean, that's. I think this. That's a good point on this triva, right? It's a good point. This triva doesn't seem to assume that, that that daughters have rights for dowries against their parents, and it's really that's why you know I, I picked this triva not because I, you know, because it's it's it gives this way out, but it's a it's a massive outlier. On the question of whether parent, right, parents can tell the daughters, the vast majority of Chivotes say that there's no difference in sons and daughters on this issue. I see. Uh, but you're right. Like, you're is picking. that a difference between Sephardi and Ashkenaz? I don't think so. Yeah, I think clearly, you know, the Ben Ishkai's, you know, he's in, you know, in Iraq. Yeah, but I got all these sources from Rav Avadia. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> right, there's one, uh, one massive Rav Avadia, I just, you know, which he just quotes, you know, where he just quotes an overwhelming array of sources that there's no difference between sons and daughters and slips this one in, you know, under the radar. Mm-hmm. But there is this one and then there's a way out of this one too. Uh, right, this is my whole my whole tenth grade curriculum again. <laughs> was that one true that one true of and just looking up the things that he uh, that he cited. Um, okay, right, so again, you know, you can claim I'm overreading it. I, you know, I think it um, I think it you know it certainly creates in extreme versions, right? That you're right. That there's a way. That there's a, a boundary at which we point. We say, if you want me to do things that will cause me to sin, right? Not just lifting either, right? You know, in the narrow sense, but you're doing things which will, right? Which I think are really injurious to my moral development, right? So I, you know, I, I framed it positively, right? Think if you're going to inhibit my moral development, you know, you could say no. It's only if there are things that are injurious. You could always set up a say. It depends on how you know how how serious the covered issue is, how realistic, you know, how, how fair it is. Uh, Yeah, so he doesn't frame the argument that way. Like he could have framed that way. He could have said, you're not amcha, right? He could have said, it's lift naiver, and he doesn't frame it that way. He frames it as if the daughter says that she's right. So you're, you, you, I could, if I wanted, you know, if I were Lumbus, I could say, no, he's just making a version of the lift naiver argument, right? That you can't, you can't strike your grown son because it will cause him to violate kibbutz avayim. You could do that. I don't think he is, but it's a fair, right? It's a fair critique. Yes, Deborah.
and I w if, even I would not go that far, but uh, but I am reading it the way you are that you know that he that you know that he's he's at, he's going beyond the the question on the paper, and right you know and he's and he's telling like this it was wrong of them to ask even though right there is it I don't have I don't have a, an easy technical way out it was wrong of them to, right it's wrong of them to ask this. But what's wrong is for them to ask her to be celibate. It's not wrong for them to ask her not to have children. It's not wrong for them to ask her to stay in their house. It's not wrong for them to ask her to be their personal slave for all eternity. What's wrong is for them to ask her to, for celibacy. Yeah, so that's also, that's also right. And your question about whether these are real shiles or not is a great question. I don't know enough about the Taralishma to answer the question. It could, it, you know, part of the problem, right, is Mark pointed out the, you know, the, right, you know as I answer, Mark asked questions that forced me to, you know, to say that it's, it's so out of the mainstream that way. And to say, so the, the, Perhaps the example in the Gemara of a rights-based argument is that women have a right to have children even though they have no obligation. Which he did not mention. Which he doesn't mention, right? That's, right, that's part of the class. Right? Like life of Brian. <laughs> life of... Which one? Oh. Yes. I quoted it earlier. Now I'm not getting... Life of Brian we missed. I don't want to take up the time explaining this. Okay. I'll do that after. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, there's obligations here. But I'm not remembering it. I guess, yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, all right. Um, yeah. So, you know, so the 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 easy answer is you know, is you know, women can demand divorce because they want to have children, uh, right? Because they deserve because they need a shovel to bury them, a stick to a stick to lean on and a shovel to bury them, and so that's like the case where 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 there's a pure rights based argument in halacha. So right, you would expect him to say that, right? You know that parents can't demand things that right can't demand the whole system can't demand things of you. How can parents demand things of you that force you to grow old with no stick to lean on and no, right and no shovel to bury you? So you know, there's a temptation to argue that this is all written so he can right the whole case is written so he can give this answer. Um, but I don't know enough about him to. Uh, I don't know enough about him or about his style to say it, but it, the temptation is certainly there because there are so many other obvious answers that he ignores. Um, but you know, this is, we only do two of his tributes. You know, there, there are a lot of tributes I haven't read through them. Um, okay. Marik addressing the same question in terms of sons. So we looked at some of the answers, uh, some of the answers last time. Um, so here he gives you uh, right, he gives you a uh, a number of ways in which, uh, which are just explicit limits and pretty radical limits on the on kibbutz aim. Uh, so, right, so whether whether a father has the power to object to a son marrying the woman that the son desires to marry, so if the woman is fit for him, so what fit for him is a difficult word, but probably it means if there's no halachic objection to the marriage. Um, yeah, so right, the language comes from the the, the mission about Ben Sarer and Moreh. Uh, that right, that says if the father if the mother is not fit for the father, then and the gemara the gemara's havamina is that it means halachically fit, and then the gemara changes it to mean their exact same height, and voice and so it's unlikely that this means <laughs> exact same height, right? So probably it means halachically fit because those are the only two options in the gemara. Um, but you know it could also it could mean that he's borrowing it to means you know that it's within the right social universe. Um, so. The first answer he gives is that with regard to money, the parents, right, the rabbis rule for Birmia that the parents bear the, bear the cost of honoring parents. So, 
What, how does that matter here? So I forgot to translate the one line. The line in the, the Hebrew is Kol Shekain Hacha, the fifth line in the Tshuva, and Marik 166, is Kol Shekain This is something where the parents are imposing the equivalent of physical pain on the child. So that's a really wild argument, right? That when we say that parents that that parents have to bear the costs of of kibbutz aim, so we could easily have said that means parents have to bear the financial costs. But obviously, there are costs that children have to bear, right? Is intrinsically, right? Just doing it takes time. Uh, but he says no. If it means that, par- that the parents can't impose financial costs, then they certainly can't impose the cost of physical pain. So I guess you know, you know, I guess my father couldn't you know ask, right? Couldn't insist that I you know that I do anything that requires bending over, on, right on <laughs> on the average on the average weekday because that causes pain or walking or anything like that. Um, and then um, and then he says, and not only do we say that, but this is a psychological pain which is equivalent to physical pain. It's like we're two steps removed from the right from the original claim, right? We moved from financial costs to physical pain to a claim that psychological pain is equivalent to physical pain, and that's a pretty remarkable thing. Uh, that's a pretty remarkable thing. Does it have to be physical pain? It, does all psychological pain rise to the level of physical pain? Is there a threshold of physical pain that right that um, right that can, that can't be demanded? I don't know, but it's a pretty radical move to say that you're right that. Um, that we go all the way from money to psychological pain, making sure to mention physical pain along the way. Because right? you could have just said, you can't impose financial costs, and of course you can't impose psychological costs. Right? But he gets physical pain in along the way. Um, okay, then he says, the dispute, about costs, the dispute about costs applies only to things which are relevant to the father, such as support of the father and sustaining him. But something irrelevant to the father, like the, um, like the case here, obviously the father has no power. So this has always bothered me, like the claim that the parents have no, no relevance to whom their children marry. Of course, it's like one of the most emotionally important things to parents, right? You know, what the, right, whom, their, whom their children marry. And that's why the Nitziv can't handle this and says, you know, look, if it's really going right, really to harm the parent's social standing, then the parents have something to say. And the whole argument goes on about whether Yitzhak and Rivka could have told Esav not to marry, right, not, uh, not to marry the, the wives that were Morat Ruach uh, to them or not. Um, but he says that a principle which sounds like it's really like Kibbutz Aim doesn't extend to things that are more the parent, the children's business than the parents. And if the parents try to extend Kibbutz Aim to areas that are more the children's lives than the parents, then that's right. Then that's already out of bounds. Uh, which is also a very strong claim. Avraham sends sends Eliezer. All right, maybe okay. Yeah, always always the question. So you know, as I usually teach in the narrative of Chinnah Ben Tradyon, right? So there are always some people who say, ah, that you know that that narrative that narrative is a horas shah, and other people who say that narrative is a paradise. How do you do? Okay. So parents go by having arranged marriages when they're children. Yeah, you could do that. You could do that, you know, and it all depends on that in Tesla. But I think that in the in the modern world, I think that the generalization is that, like, you know, they have to figure out what are the spaces we think are children's spaces. But like, for example, what profession you go into, 
right? That's pretty clear, right? If people are trying, right? If, if people are trying to run your life in detail, right? There's you know, that that's a fair test, right? That you know, that kibbutz avaim does not, right? Should not and has no right to extend to making you do, making making you do things on issues that are more your business than theirs, and right now it, it gives you a pretty. You know, a pretty interesting example, right? Who you marry is more your business than theirs. You could say this is the obvious example or not, as to how, because one, it is obviously more your business than theirs, and the other hand, it's not obviously not their business. Um, which is why I said the Nasiv comes back and pu- pushes back and says, like, you know, that there really is an issue if, you're, right, if your marriage is going to destroy your parents' social standing, which I think makes us uncomfortable for other reasons. Um, like, we don't think, we don't like to think of class that way. Um, Okay. I'm, gl- I'm glad your parents liked me anyway. <laughs> Are there any cases that you know get really interesting in terms of how 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 grandparents are trying to start their children? I don't know of any grandparent cases. I really don't. Rina, do you want to say something? Well, you can do it economically, or you can say, "Look, all right, I I tell you that what, you know, that I will be very unhappy, and I think you have a chiv of kibudav aim to listen to me." Well, you can certainly parents certainly economic things. They can they can say refuse to pay. They can refuse to pay for for, for your for, right. The same like you will pay for grad school, and you can right, and, and you know so long as. Okay, and nonetheless, they might have that kind of power, and or they might just say not just question. They might just use emotional power and say, "Look, you know what? I tell you, and I expect you to listen to me because I, right? You know, I raised you to be whatever it is. You know, a doctor, uh, a stock analyst, um, or you know, or uh, homeopathic med. You know, <laughs> pardon? Whatever it may be, yes, right, you know, right, you know, look, look, the case where really, co- where the case we can really imagine it coming up very often is when there's a hereditary business, and you expect your children to go into the business, mm-hmm. and right, and this whole rich family tradition will disappear if you don't go into the business. Like the New York Times has a big article today about the family business of selling mud to Major League Baseball to rub baseballs, because um, apparently there's only mud from a secret spot somewhere, <laughs> somewhere, which is the only mud that you're allowed to use to uh, in order to properly remove the gleam from Major League Baseball. Uh, and that was a whole controversy because the Major League are trying to standardize and they may be moving away from the traditional mud. But like, what happens if the son of this now third generation business <laughs> said, no, I'm not going to take the trek to the secret spot in whatever state it is. Uh, you know, and telling all the people around me it's because of this is really good for my garden in order to ship the 20 pounds of mud or whatever it is to every Major League Baseball team that, so that they can rub down. I mean, that's the extreme version, but you, like, you know, farms, right, it was a really big thing, right, sustaining the farm, the farm was sustaining the family name. Right? So, so, yeah. Okay, all sorts of things like that, where you, you know, or, uh, or you, right, or you want your, you know, you want your children to be Rosh Hashiva, whatever it may be, because that, right, because that's way, that's what you think the, the family, the family legacy was on. And uh, right, that, it's, it's not a bad argument that you have a responsibility. Pardon? Things are lost. 
real things are lost. It's not just selfishness. Yeah, right. So it's important to have a shot, right? To have it said that no, actually, you know what? That matters more to you. That's not obvious. It's true, but it's not obvious. I wouldn't say pshita. You would say pshita. Okay. That's why then you would say I would say pshita. You know, you would say then you would point to me. That's all. <laughs> that's why it's not pshita because he might because he might have said the other way around. Because I think uh, traditions. It's it's hard when traditions are lost. It's hard when traditions are lost. The world is a less rich place. Everyone makes decisions that way. Um, okay. Um, okay, right. Then he has, right, then he has, because the shans wasn't even more severe. Limited has to be only things that the parents get direct benefits from. Any kind of indirect benefit doesn't count in the realm of Kibbutz Uh It's interesting. You know, really interesting. Like, you know, very, very narrow. The Kibbutz Aveim is, like, take, you know, is, is only direct physical benefit. Pretty, really, really. It doesn't mean, at least Kibbutz Aveim, you know, to the extent that it requires cost from the, from the children. Okay, so I think that, I think you have, a, you know, from those of you, you have a whole set of lists, and, and in many of these cases, I think that you can see how repeated efforts in this area would, would, would tend towards abuse. People who tend to prioritize, right, to say that, you know, that to, whose space expands to fill their children's lives that way. And, right, and think, and insist on it. Right, so that's a form. Right, that's often a form of control, which we recognize as a form of abuse. Thing. Um, right, so it's a good test. Right, you know, if when you right, are your um, are your uh, right, are you, you know, is, is your space expanding into spaces that really are someone else's? Um, okay, now there's a there's a there's a primary source that all of you, you know that, that probably many of you are familiar with, which is Machlokas um, Ramam and Ravid about how you deal with um, elderly parents with dementia. Right, so the Ramam says that if your uh, right, that if your parents, uh, if your parent, if your parent is nitrafad dato, right, means to some extent they're um, right, they're mentally incompetent. So he says mishtadil, which is a really interesting language, right? You make the effort. Uh, it's not usually halachic language to be mishtadil, uh, right? So you make the you make the effort linhogi mahem daatam to behave with them in accordance with what they are currently mentally. Until God has mercy on them, and that sounds like uh, you know veiled, um, veiled language, you know about uh, you know that he's not hoping for cure. Um, but if you, it hits the point where it's simply unbearable for the child, because parents have just gotten too crazy, you can right, you can just abandon them. Uh, and, and command others. Now, command others presumably means command and pay others to treat them appropriately. And the Ravid gets up and says, "What?" Right, Ravid says, "Ein zuhora Right, this is an incorrect legal ruling. Right, if, if he can't stay, stand it, what's going to happen when you pay people to be attendants? Right, so this is a saying that we know that that is a, obviously a major struggle in America today. Uh, right, um, how you hand, how you handle cases like that, and it's sort of interesting to figure. Pardon? Well, one could argue was, oh, people always struggle and just didn't talk about it. Um. Yeah. Also, like you have, you know, first of all, you have to have the resources to pay for somebody, right? So it requires a it requires a society which is fairly wealthy, right? We have the option of hiring some, of hiring somebody else. Um, yeah, the problem is there. The problem is there, but I think I think the problem is 
exacerbated because of because uh, medical care in America, and maybe I don't know. There was a report today because of air pollution, right? Where we may have a higher rate, of, you know, because we both live longer and we, and we may have a higher rate of dementia uh, for all sorts of, for all sorts of reasons. Because because people play soccer and have their have their heads banged repeatedly, whatever, right? Whatever it may be that we may we may just have a much higher rate of dementia, not as high as a society which you know which which mind lead, but um, but uh, but a fairly high but a fairly high level. Um, so, interesting question to me, right, you know, is that people have been struggling for a thousand years to try and figure out what are the Ram and the Ravid really arguing about, and it's tempting for me to say that, well, for the Rambam, there's no relationship in the first place, right, so all that's necessary for the Rambam is for everyone to recognize that this is the kind of circumstance that children can't bear. And then you're not diminishing your parents, right? Your parents have the, have the normal kavod of parents, and everything's great. And the Ravid is, you know, the Ravid is saying, we're not talking about social standing here. We're talking about taking care of them, uh, right? And the question, right? And the Ravid is like, who's going to take care of them properly? Now later on, right? You know, people introduce different notions, and they say that the real issue here is that um, people with dementia need to be manhandled, and that's forbidden for for children. Because right, right, you have to use physical force in ways that right, that would be an active violation, and that's really what's going on here. And that the question between the Ram and the Ravid is whether there are forms of care that are, are just, that every time you do them, you're risking your soul, which is parallel to the debate in the Gemara about whether children right we we discourage children from performing surgery on parents if there's a, an equal alternative available because they're drawing blood. And what happens if they make a medical error, right? So then it's not, so then, right, so you're striking your parents in a way, right, which is a capital crime, in a way, right, so you might be accidentally violating a capital crime if you happen, right, if, if your scalpel slips. So, right, so there's a way of understanding the Raman Ravid that so way. That, how would, how would the reply work? Sorry, say it again. I didn't, I didn't. Where, you know, that later, you know, hundreds of years later, you know, institutions developed that were flawed, that were often terrible places, but if, you know, a person feels they have no choice but to take that. So, they're they're not, says, they're not, so they're not in, you know, involved in that day to day basis of man having or whatever. So, but they, they know that's not the place to be yes, yeah, so the Ramos says and then there's a question whether it says Kara'ui or Kara'ui Lahem, right? The, to, to, right? The Gemara says Kara'ui and he says Kara'ui Lahem. I don't know, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, I think this is, you know, I don't think it's going to stop being a hard question. I think that, um, I think that, you know, that, uh, that you certainly say, like, you know, if you're leaving people in a fairly good situation, I think that the bar for your leaving is much is, is much is much lower than if you're leaving people at the door of the asylum, where they're going. You know, I mentioned like today, you can watch watching the film Hiding and Seeking and seeing how a, a family can take care of the elderly. Um, and yeah, I say watching my mother take care of uh, take care of, uh, of her father and watching my my brother-in-law take care of his mother are all things you know that that set bars that are really quite terrifying for me. Um, so, I tend to think that um, that to Paskin purely like the Rambam is not a good societal thing. I think generally, Rani Kibbutzavim, the Paskin purely like the Rambam is not a good societal thing. I think we can understand that there are things which are unbearable, 
and uh, you know, and I, you know, and, and I, I don't know how I would deal with a situation like that. You know, thank God I have not had to deal with a situation like that, but I have no idea. I watched others, right? and then it's extraordinarily hard, extraordinarily hard. And you know, there are things I can't do. I can't kill bugs, right? If I can't kill bugs, how am I going to, right? So I know there are things I just can't handle, um, right? But the bias, I think, should be the other way. Yes, Rena. Yeah, so I understand. Like, so that I think is a challenge. I think the issue is whether the uh, the obligation isn't in terms of kibbutz ava aim. There might be other kinds of obligations, right? If it's your space in your culture, you want to claim there are cultures where so something. Right. So space. Yeah. So that's a great question, right? What happens? Right? Is space an objective category or is space a culturally defined category in Okinami, right? If you have, you know, space when, to some extent, I would agree. It'd be interesting to figure out exactly what the boundaries are, but to some extent, I understand that um, space is space is culturally contingent, and to the extent that space is culturally contingent, then you have a the same kind of shaila you have, like Labdil, you know, when you have a society where the standards of dress are one, and you move right, and you all of a sudden you integrate into another society. Uh, whether the standards of politeness are, are one, or the standards of how you, or, or how much physical space you give people, right? All those things. How you na- how you navigate cross cultural things is a really challenging question, which uh, I don't, you know, I'm not gonna have simple answers for. Um, right? That's uh, you know, I think like, you know, I think that part of the if you were writing a halachic novel about Kilchus Kibbutz so you talk about what about what happens when people move to a society. When we say that, right, that it's it's a violation of Lifnayver to discipline your children in a way which is likely to get them to treat you disrespectfully. So what happens often in immigrant cultures is you have right that they behave in a way which in the home society would not have been right, but because the children have acculturated and it's just right massive culture shock. Uh, right, white, right, because right, because each side believes they're asking something perfectly reasonable and the other one is being totally to, to, right, totally in the wrong universe. Um, and that's the real issue. You know, I guess I should say you know, that, that uh, cause this story I tell often that um, that uh, both my parents were uh, strongly discouraged, shall we say, by their parents from attending college, and uh, they both got doctorates and they managed, you know, and, and um, did it in a way which did not impair the relationship with their parents, which is quite an, you know, quite quite a remarkable accomplishment. Um, which, to which I think yes. Both ways. It's a regular college all around. Right? It's, it's, a, it's a testament to an incredible relationship that you could have a disagreement about something so fundamental because it was a religious objection um, and nonetheless end up with a, you know, with a you know, you know, an utterly unmarred relationship, at least, you know, at least by the time I could see it, which is really quite, uh, quite remarkable. Um, Okay, um, so the only things things to learn there is there are a number of gemaras which we talked about early 
which uh, deal with explicitly abusive cases. Um, to, right, there, there are, there's one Gemara where uh, Dama Benetina is sitting before the elders of Rome, and his mother comes and rips off his rips off rips off his gold diadem and whatever whatever, whatever that is, and slaps him in the face and spits on him. Uh, right in the Yerushalmi version, she she takes off her slipper and starts beating him about the face, and she drops it and he hands it to her. Um, right, so there are there are Gemaras which seem to valorize. Valorize uh, explicitly, seem to explicitly valorize uh, abusive behavior, and those have to be dealt with. Um, but, yeah, so there are a couple of ways of dealing, dealing with them. One of them is that they're narratives, and so you always have to figure out what the purpose of narratives are. Often, narratives are about extreme behavior that is intended inspirationally rather than paradigmatically. Uh, and you just have to know how to read them. It would be very wrong to read them as halakhali. You say, look, this is a person who showed a particular, right, what I call a chassid as opposed to a chacham. Uh, right? He showed a particular virtue in, a, in an extreme fashion, and the virtue is admirable, and the devotion to the, to the, to the value is admirable, but the lack of balance is not. Right? Nobody, right, no, right? In, fact, right, in fact, you shouldn't hand somebody back a slipper when they're beating you, right? when they're beating you about the face in public. Uh, right, there are other attempts to resolve it and say, like, you know, what good does it do to yell at them? Right, if you could stop her from beating him, of course, right, of course she could, but if he's going to beat her anyway, so then why does he have to humiliate her? He could, right? right, nothing is gained by that way, which is the version we talked about where your parents can throw your gold into the ocean, but you can sue them afterwards. You just can't object when they throw it into the ocean. Uh, right, there's a version like that. And the version, which I, you know, I'm going to kill a beautiful shear here, but just so you should be aware of it, uh, the, ver- the dumb man has seen a version in the Yerushalmi, um, which we can, we can look at briefly just because I think it's always fun. Valuable to look at. Um, if and this is on, well, it's on the page. That's in here. Twice. Yeah, I, 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 I copy the file. Also. Whatever the page, which is Talmud, which is Yerushalmi Pei Aleph Aleph, um, which is um, which is the page where there's two things on the left in English. It's Kedushin 31a on top of English, and then it's Yerushalmi, right, then Yerushalmi Pei one one. So the um, so Dom Benetina right is a Gentile from Ashkelon, and he is the Rosh Pater Boli. Uh, right, the Rosh Pater Boli, so the uh, a Pater, a pa- pardon? It is in fact, well, it's from whatever language is cognate with Latin then. So the Pater, so Bolus is a stone, and a Pater is a father, so he is the head of the father stones. Um, and uh, apparently he's from Ashkelon, apparently archaeologically they have in fact dug up the seats of the town council in Ashkelon, and in fact they are rocks arranged, arranged in, a, in a semicircle around the, uh, around, uh, near the gate. And right, and the stone his father sat on, right? The the all right, so remember, remember right, that Evan, of course, is Av and Bain together, right? So stone, stones per se are, are references to uh, parental to, uh, to parental relationships, and so the stone his father sat on, Evan Aviv, Mav, he never sat upon it. So that looks like he's a perfect Kibbutz Avim person, because one of the first things a Kibbutz Avim is not to sit in his place. But the Kevan Shemed Aviv and once his father right, once his father died, he made that rock his idol. So Dom Benesina is actually representative of a parent-worshipping culture, not a parent-honoring culture. Um, right, and they're all, right, there are all sorts of puns, which I, I won't kill tonight in doing them, but they just set it out, right, that, he's, that Dom Benesina is presented here as a parent-worshipping culture, and he's a parent-worshipping culture because this is the same scheme as the Medrash, which shows Esau being superb at Kibbutz Avaim because, because Dom Benesina, Dama is Edom, and, right, and he's Roman, and Esav is Rome, and Esav is Rome, and so it's actually in the Rishalmi those versions are not very veiled critiques of excessively patriarchal cultures. 
uh, right? We're dumb, we're dumb, right? We're explicit that dumb Menasina's actions, um, right, right, are a function of idolatry and not a function of Kibbutz Avim. Now, that doesn't survive in the Babli. So, right, so how you play that halakhically, the Babli seems to tell the story straight. But, um, but I think it has legitimacy, certainly even within the Babli, if you understand where the story came from. I should always credit my friend Nachman Levine for, uh, pointing, for pointing this out to me. Um, I had no idea at all. And there are many, many more puns. And, right, and as I always mentioned, Nachman taught me to read that when uh, Jews talk with Gentiles in rabbinic literature, the, the dialogue is almost always conducted in multiple, uh, in, mul- in multiple languages. And to understand it, you have to get the puns across the languages. Um, right, I'll give you the, the one I was talking about, right, is uh, just briefly, right, is the Gentile stands on one foot, right? Right, he writes, teach me the Torah while standing on one regal. And Hill says, what, what is hateful to you do not do unto somebody else. Right, because Hill, because he's asking me to teach me the Torah on one regal. And Hill responds with one regular. That's the Roman word for a rule, right, it's a regular. And Shammai, right, before drove him out with the builder's cubit in his hands, right, Amat, Amat, Amat Abinyan should be a doe. But why, right, so people think Shammai is a carpenter, but he's not a carpenter. There's no evidence anywhere Shammai is a carpenter. Uh, we have a word for a for a, we have a word for a stick that tells you how long how long a space is measurement it is it's called a ruler, and a ruler in Latin is a regula. So right so right so he asks for the Torah al regula chat and Shammai, Shammai responds with one kind of regula which is a ruler and, and Hillel responds with another kind of regula which is a rule right and that's how that's how conversations between Jews and Gentiles um, go right go go in the Talmud right so just be like you know that this is what Nachman showed me and like, it makes learning learning these stories much much more. Fun. Right, I'm killing the hour version, which you know, which which is usually filled with Gail's hysterical laughter. But when you show when you show all the parts, any case. But that, this, I think that that's a shot in the Yerushalmi, and I think that's probably what the story meant originally. And then it's an interesting question: what happens when the Bavli um, takes many of the puns out? Because they're not right. Maybe because they're not because because the Bavli Bavli's not in Rome, so they don't have the same culture to critique. Right? So they're talking about. Yeah, and maybe, maybe they didn't get the puns because right because the puns only work in Latin, right? That could be. That, uh, it's part of the world where there's Latin. I mean, this is that part. It's the, mostly the Greek. You know, that part of the Roman Empire is Greek speaking. Like it's Rome was still. Yes, yeah, so there's also right. There's also so, Greek stuff allegedly because uh, because uh, um, because a Demirius is uh, is is a para. Right. So right. So Dama right. So Dama is all, right. Gets rewarded with a with a para aduma. Right, because Adama is both because right, because Adama is a para and Adama is right, and Adama is red. Right, all all sorts of right. So that that one's Greek. Right, they're all they're all, they're all sorts of uh, all sorts of multilingual real lingual puns. And just, I don't know any Greek at all. But, yeah. Yeah, probably. Uh, and it's Aramaic. Aramaic yeah. so, well, no. is a cognate language. The puns aren't the, the puns aren't anywhere near as much fun. Um, okay, so I want to just I want to conclude with two. Um, you know, I'm gonna try and do it in one story, and we'll see if we can pull it off. Right. So there's a, there's a Gemara that's on the last page. Um, Gemara says Ravasi had an old mother, and she said to him, "I need cosmetics," and he and so he made her up, and he said, "She said I need a man," and he said, "Okay, we'll look for a shidduch," and she said, "I need a man as uh, handsome as you," and at that point he got the idea that this is a little creepy. And he runs right, and and, uh, he, and he runs away to Israel. Um, and I think the simplest way of understanding the story, lots of ways to understand the story. And he hears that she's coming after him. And so he goes to Rabbi Yochanan, and he says, right, he says, 
Am I allowed to, uh, what's the law about leaving, leaving Eretz Yisrael for, for outside Eretz Yisrael? And Rabbi Yochan says, it's usher. And he says, what about to greet my mother? So like, it's, you know, that, like, that, that's a, you know, in, in the narrative story, that's a great, that's a, a great anticlimax. You're expected to say, what, if to, what about to avoid my mother? Right? But it says he's, instead he says, what about to greet my mother, which is absolutely not the thing you're expecting. And, um, and Rav Yochanan says, I don't know. And he goes away, and he comes back a little bit later, and he comes, and he asks, and Rav Yochanan sees him standing there and says, you decided to go? Okay, you know, may God bless you. May, uh, may God return you in peace. Now, I'm you know, shortening the story because in the end it turns out that by, you know, by the time he goes, his mother is dead and he's going to greet her coffin and there are all sorts of further complications in the story. But the question is, what changes Rabbi Yochanan's mind if he changes? Right? Why does the first time he say, I don't know, and the second time say, you made up your mind, go ahead? So the flat way to read the story is, he didn't know. So, okay, we don't know when someone else makes up their mind, so why, right? so why object? Uh, Rabbi Willig read the story um, differently, um, where he assumed that, you know, that Rabbi Yochanan, when Rabbi Yochanan says, I don't know, it didn't mean he was halachically unsure. Got it, right? It's not a difficult halachic question in that way. What he meant was that there was a fact he was unsure of. And the fact he was unsure of was why Rabbi Yochanan was asking. Now, the way I read it, which is not exactly Rabbi Willig's way, um, but it's, it's similar. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm not keeping Rabbi Willig's way in mind precisely right now, but you should be aware that my formulation is not the same as his. Um, is that what Rabbi Yochanan was asking was whether he was going in order to fulfill the, um, to fulfill, yeah, so Rabbi formulation is, was Rabbi Yochanan asking because, because he was going to fulfill the Chiv of Kibbut Ava'im or because he had a relationship with his mother? <laughs> and, and what he said to him, and the nature of the relationship changes as to whether the relationship is solely based on the position or whether there's a human component to it, or in our original terms, whether he's going because he holds, right, in order to fulfill the Ramam's Kibbut Avaim, or he's going to fulfill the Haridim's Kibbut Avaim. Uh, right, even though, right, he ran away because he, right, because he couldn't deal with it, but if, right, but when she's, you know, when she's, she's going to come after him anyway, so he's going to do it right, he's going to do it right, because he understands, right, that's the nature of the relationship, even if he can't hand, stand it at close quarters, right, but he has no choice. So it's not like he doesn't dislike her, um, he doesn't think he doesn't overcover, he's not trying to, right, he's just running away, which is an option you have um, in the Rambam, because in the Rambam it's always social position. So, right, the Rebbe thought that the, the change in Rabbi Yochanan is the Rabbi Yochanan, that if... If Rav Asi was only going to fulfill the Rambam, again, this is my, my version of it, then he wouldn't come back. Because it's just a halachic question, do I have a chiv? And the answer is no. So he doesn't come back, right, because it's a suffix, right? So, right, so that would prove that, that, they would, that, would prove that, he was th- that there was no human relationship. But if there's a human relationship, then, right, then, then of course he can, right, that, that, then, Right, the mechanical relationship doesn't override the issue of leaving Eretz Yisrael, but the human relationship does. And those are two different dimensions in Hilchut Kibbut Avaim, right? Whether Hilchut Kibbut Avaim is built on a, is built solely on a halachic structure, and you're trying to fulfill your obligations, or whether Hilchut Kibbut Avaim is, are you know, are a way of embodying a genuine relationship. And I really argued that you know what we give a lot more halachic weight to the second kind than the first. Um, and I think that that's 
probably the, uh, I think that probably the way to handle many of the questions where people feel like the, um, feel, you know, feel, you know with the relationship is overpowering and it feels like that people are taking out too much of your space and at the same time, you acknowledge, which I think we should do more, I think we run too fast to call that abuse as opposed to just, you know, Running into right, running into a space which makes it very hard to be together, and where particular things feel right. So I, so I, what I like to do in the context of Psak is to argue that you know, that the the first strategy is to strip the mitzvah down to the Ramam level. I say, look, you know, I understand you can't sustain the relationship in right on the level that requires you know that requires genuine expressions of emotion, but that doesn't mean that the that the the other option is is completely cutting off relationship. Immediately, what you do is you strip it to the formal level, and then you see at some point whether it's possible to build it back to a level where, to a level where, there's, a genuinely, where there's a genuine human element to it. Um, so I think that, that's, right, that's the, the underlying thesis I want to set out from, right, is that there is a right to self-care, and, there's, and there are many protections against abuse. But it's also important to distinguish between a right to self-care and, right, and, right, and a prohibition against abuse. Not everything which interferes with self-care is abuse. It's just, right, it's just an inappropriate breaching of boundaries. And therefore, I think that the often, now I say often, you know, I guess I wasn't like, the first time the Shiloh was really brought to me, I think I've probably already mentioned this in the series, but it always like, comes back to me because it was like one of the terrifying first Shilohs I was asked was by a, a college student who's, right, whose father was abusive whose mother asked her to come home for Yantiv. And right, he came to ask me, like, do I have a chiv of kibbutz out towards my mother? Um, right, so I, there are really, really abusive cases. There are cases, you know, and there are people I have paskin for that just don't have to, right, they're entitled to cut off all relations with their parents because their parents are genuinely abusive. Um, but I think that there's also a leap um, particularly if you work with teenagers, right? If you work with teenagers, you discover that an astounding percentage of parents are abusive. Because um, that's how teenagers perceive it, at least in, in our culture. And that's how they experience it, right? So you can't deny their experience. At the same time, I think that... Uh, I don't even think you have to question it. I think you can oh. say is, I think you can create a framework. And the framework you can create is... Right. Do you think that it would really be harmful to you to sustain a formal relationship? Right, right. That's all it asks of you, right? To be you know, whatever the parameters that are, call for Shabbos. And say hello and goodbye. Um, right, you know, show up, right, you know, you know send a, send a present for whatever things are important in that family to send a present. Show up to whatever right to whatever to whatever events are important, and that's it. Um, and then see. Right, and then see. So I, I, so I think, I think that there is space in halacha. Right, and that's why I go back to what I said in the first thing. There's space in halacha, to, as opposed to thinking, well, we paskin like the Rambam, or we paskin like the Chariot. And there's space to say that there are gradations of the mitzvah, and that that's valuable because it lets us strip it away. So I have a, my own formulation, which is different than Ray Willig's, is is about relationships with parent. Is uh, where the right where the there are things where it, where you harm somebody not because, right? Not you harm them because there's a way in which you relate to 
human beings who are your parents, which is not the same way you relate to all human beings. And that's how I keep it in the context. It's not just that there's human relationship, there's human relationship as parents. People are hurt, right? People are hurt emotionally because they're not being treated, um, right? Because they're human beings, and human beings who are parents get hurt when they're not treated as parents, which is different than saying you're acting in a social way that doesn't, right, that doesn't give them the honor of their positions. So that's, that's, that's tighter. Um, I don't know if that's the right, you know, I think that works in some contexts and not in others. And the point I really want to make, right, and that's one of the tests, and then I'm, you know, be glad to get feedback for the next however long, uh, you know, years, whatever it may be, is that we should think of the mitzvah as built on, you know, with the Ramam as a core, and the, and the Haredim and the, and the Sefer HaKinech built on top of it. And when, for good or less good reasons, because of the specifics of a specific relationship, or because just the, because of a cultural clash, or because, right, because the cultural moment is the way it is, um, the full relationship is unsustainable. We have to recognize that. There are all sorts of ways in which Allah says, you know what, there's no kibbut ava'im when it imposes even minor costs on children, right? When it's not part of when it's not part of fulfilling children, right? All these ways in which I could, if I wanted to, paskin in ways that kibbut that there's almost never a chiv when there's a real cost to a child. I mean, I could have counter sources, but I can build it up that way if I want. But that the that the strategy in Psaq and people is to figure out like what can we strip the relationship down to that still maintains the Salahic framework and then with the aspiration that at some point we can build it back into what we what we really want it to be um, if we can alright that's all I had to say um, people want to comment or respond do it by email. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening all summer. It's been great to uh, be back in the sitting. Um, at least we had the brief entertainment moment. <laughs> so there's a scene on Life and Brian.